Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 41, Dear Reader, in Solidarity, Felicia, recorded March 28, 2021. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out And the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Hey, hey, TA Podians. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And check out video episodes on our YouTube channel. We also have a pod shop. So go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and get yourself a tee. There are crewnecks, v-necks, and long sleeve tees. Or uh, mm, a tank top might be your jam or a cozy hoodie. I also get a ton of use out of my tote bag. And I also drink a lot out of the mug. <laughs> um, you know, every episode I sort of try and mark what's up and and um, give a sort of current, you know, current moment situations. And I think I'm a current moment situation. So, um, in this time of COVID in the, in the last 12, 14 months, um, I've mostly been in my Brooklyn home, but, uh, I've had the chance to go and visit elsewhere. Um, uh, mostly, in other people's homes who've opened their homes to me. So I went to Jersey and spent time with one of my, actually, these are all different besties. So uh, I went to the, my uh, besties home. Um, uh, she's my bestie from grad school. Um, and then a different friend out East uh, over the summer. Um, uh, she's my bestie from childhood. And um, currently I'm in, um, in a suburb of Atlanta with my bestie from college undergrad. So, um, I'm very blessed to have friends who will open their homes, allow me to just come visit either by renting a car or picking me up or flying on points. <laughs> and, um, here, not only was I able to spend a good quality and work from home, work remotely from, um, her dining room, but I, we also took a lovely spring break, um, a well-needed break on the beach. Um, and what a delight and how lucky am I, right? I feel very, very grateful, very, very blessed. Um, and in this uh, area, this is actually the, 
um, the land from which my family hails. And um, most more specifically, I'm speaking from the unceded lands, uh, water and air stewarded by the Uchi and Cherokee nations. And these are two of the three nations that are woven into my DNA. Um, yeah, through a, a, a network of solidarity, right? And love. Um, and I identify as black from my, uh, um, there's a story from my father's side of the family that um, the first sort of record of what is known to be our matriarch and our patriarch of our generations um, were freed and self-liberated, sorry, self-liberated enslaved uh, folk who um, were married and, and started family. And I believe I'm the seventh generation of that family, I think. Um, and I was able to visit um, who I I think is is maybe not considered the matriarch, but definitely has always felt like a leader of this family. Um, my my father's bestie, um, growing up and and all the way to the end. In fact, she just said when we had this visit, you know, he was my he was my best friend. She has so much love for him. It's crazy. It's really lovely. Anyway, so I got to visit her um, a couple of days ago, and that was such an important thing for me, but also. Um, what a delight. It was a gorgeous, sunny, like crazy, beautiful crystal blue skies, um, crystal clear blue skies, sun beaming down all day. And it wasn't like crazy hot. It was like 72 degrees. Um, but yeah, I, sh- I drove an hour to visit. She lives in Decatur and um, we got to spend time, have some fellowship and just connect. And I, ha- I hadn't seen her, honestly. I think the last time I saw her was at my father's funeral, which was 13 years ago. So I, we have spoken and communicated since then, but I hadn't seen her. Um, and she looks great. She looks great. She's a, she's a, she is just a, a year shy or two years shy of what my father, how old my father would be if he was still alive. And Wow, they, they, I don't know. I felt like I was just trying to soak it all up. And, you know, obviously we talked about all the things under the sun. We talked about my dad. We talked about her family, um, her losses, um, COVID vaccinations. Um, I also got to meet her daughter-in-law, um, who was just a lovely, lovely human being. Um, and in that conversation, Chris, my cousin, said something that draws me back to sort of the current events in the moment that we're in, the moment that we're in and the movement that we're in. Um, she said, she said, I just want to, I just want everyone to live. Um. And she almost said it like a prayer. She's a she's a uh, a woman of faith, um, and she she didn't she didn't say a prayer in that moment. But she she the way she said it, it felt uh, almost sacred. And you know, with the the trial 
that's happening. Minnesota seems to be a a very intense uh, place at the moment, but it is also where the movement has sparked. And there continues to be black folk who are targeted um, by police and pervasive white supremacy through uh, systemic and individual racism. And it's important to know that we all have individual responsibilities in dismantling this. Um, in any way that we can, any way that we can, and it is a daily responsibility. Um, and in that moment, she, without, you know, again, sort of putting it any more, uh, politically necessarily, she just wants everyone to live. I just want everyone to live. I want everyone to thrive. Um, and so that is good. That, that visit is going to stick with me for a very long time. Um, ah, man, I love that woman. So this brings me to this moment, uh, and this episode, uh, this episode features a guest, Felicia Rose Chavez, who's the author of the book, the anti-racist writing workshop how to decolonize the creative classroom. Felicia is creativity and innovation scholar in residence at Colorado College. I interviewed her for an event uh, at Book Bar, which is located in Denver, Colorado, and is a bookshop for wine lovers. Yes, yes, wine lovers. There is a book, a book place for you. Uh, it's a wine bar for bookshoppers. You like books? Go to Book Bar. Uh, it is an independent bookstore in the Tennyson Street Arts District. And uh, they just opened earlier this month. Um, so if you're in the Denver area, you can make an appointment, stop by, have a glass of wine, and shop for books. They also ship nationally. And you can, I think there's pickup service. So check them out at www.bookbardenver.com dot com. Uh, 10% of all of their book sales are donated to their nonprofit organization, Book Give. By shopping with them, you are helping get more books into more hands. So in preparation for this event, Felicia and I met uh, and I wanted to hear from her directly about the, the process of writing the book and how she sees it manifesting in, in the creative writing world. Uh, one of which I, I'm not directly engaged. Um, so upon entering the Zoom room, she has a, a lovely, calm presence about her and a warm, inviting voice. And um, in this conversation, she was saying things that really resonated with me about my own work. And then as I was continuing to read the book, Again and again, I felt as though I was meeting Felicia, who um, writes about, you know, examining her own experiences as a teacher, as a learner, and then catapulting us to the present as she's offering new ways 
of decentering authority and power in the classroom to put the artist first by amplifying their voice, their experiences, their thoughts in their writing. Um, so my initial interview draft, which I shared with her, was going down a, a more traditional path. And I recognize now <laughs> that Felicia actually utilized some of the strategies she offered in the book um, in responding to my initial draft. Um, so she she made her artist statement and shared, you know, what how she really wanted this conversation to go. And and actually invited me to center myself within the conversation and not only to share my experience, my responses to the book, but how the book was making me think and feel about my own teaching experiences and more specifically uh, working to support artists to democratize classroom, uh, cl- the classrooms that they are invited to, you know, um, it was refreshing. Yeah, the, the whole conversation was super refreshing and simply delightful and had a very responsive audience. Um, I recommend you buy, buy this book. Um, you can buy it at Book Bar or wherever you buy your books. For more information about the book, The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, please visit www.antiracistworkshop.com. It is truly applicable across any creative discipline and I'm also going to say any subject area in education. Also on the website Felicia invites you to access and add to a multi-genre compilation of contemporary writers of color. Okay so the session opens with Candela Kudre, assistant children's programs coordinator uh, at the book bar and um, Candela then passes it to Felicia's partner, Idris Goodwin, who has been a guest on this podcast multiple times. And Idris co-produced this event with Book Bar. Here's episode 41, Felicia Rose Chavez, Dear Reader, in Solidarity, Felicia. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, Courtney J. Body and Felicia Chavez here today with us to speak about um, the anti-racist writing workshop. And um, Idris Goodwin will actually be moderating the conversation and the Q&A towards the end. And Idris is an award-winning scriptwriter, a breakbeat poet, an educator, and director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. And he was uh, recently named a 2021 United States Artist Fellow. In addition to Can I Kick It? He's had several publications from Haymarket Books, including The Inauguration, co-written with Nico Wilkinson, Human Highlights, Ode to Dominique Wilkins, and the play This is a Modern Art. He's appeared on Nickelodeon, HBO, Deaf Poetry, Sesame Street, NPR, BBC Radio, and the Discovery Channel. And his plays include End in This Corner, Cassius Clay, How We Got On, Hype Man, and Jacked. So it's my pleasure to uh, be here with you guys. So I'll hand it over to Idris. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And hello and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for what is going to be, I think, a really uh, rich, interesting, um, thought-provoking, powerful conversation. Um, 
again, my name is Idris Goodwin, he, him, his. I am um, based here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where I'm the director of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. Um, in addition to being a writer myself and an educator, I consider myself a culturist. But even more than that, I consider myself a bridge, bit, a bridge builder and a collaborator. And so um, I, full disclosure, uh, share a wonderful, tremendous, dynamic, uh, creative life with Felicia Rose Chavez. And I had a front row seat to the journey uh, of this book's uh, evolution of, of the, the book we're going to talk about today. And so um, I knew I wanted to uh, facilitate, uh, you know, co-produce some sort of event to celebrate the book. And uh, Book Bar, uh, this is now our third dance together um, since the pandemic, and I hope it's not our last. Um, I heard that you all just recently opened your doors back up, so that's, that's a good thing. We'd love to hear that. If you're in the front range, make sure you you stop by um, uh, Book Bar. Um, so yeah, so when I started thinking about you know this event, I wanted I I, I was like, what a great opportunity to bring together, um, you know you know who who could I pair with, you know Felicia and this book. And so my mind immediately went to Courtney J. Body. I'm going to read her her um, her bio in just a moment um, because you know this is such a, 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 a fascinating and exciting moment that we're in where we're examining all the ways that, you know, issues of, of race and racism, white supremacy have infiltrated every aspect of our lives, every institution and, um, you know, education, creative writing, the arts are certainly um, not immune to that. Um, and so when we're in this moment of transformative change, you know, I thought of Courtney because um, she's someone who is doing a lot of work in a lot of different ways around the education and around the arts. So here we go. I'm going to read her bio. Courtney J. Body, Vice President, Education and School Engagement, oversees all programs related to school communities, including the new Victory School Partnership Program, teacher professional development training in the performing arts, and an innovative approach in the professional development of more than 50 teaching artists. A 2021 Cranes New York notable Black leader and executive. Courtney Body has expanded the theater's scope of work in such programs as Victory Dance, which provides free dance and dance education to NYC summer schools, create a theater-based teacher professional development track for the city's pre-K expansion, the largest in the nation, and give a new initiative to address equitable student engagement and inclusion classrooms. Very, very fancy things going on. Uh, keep your, your eyes peeled for um, a comprehensive report and study that I know she was a part of called We Can't Go Back. Is that correct, Courtney? Am I saying that right? Um, uh, and so lot, lots of exciting things happening. Um, she's also the creator and the host of Teaching Artistry, um, a monthly podcast, which I've had the pleasure to be um, a guest on before. Um, she's an adjunct professor at NYU, a Hermitage Artist Fellow, and a Women's Center uh, Media uh, She Source. Uh, she was on the board of directors of the Association of Teaching Artists for five years and served on the Teaching Artists Committee of the NYC Arts and Education Roundtable. Courtney is going to um, uh, guide us through this conversation uh, with Felicia Rose Chavez. I'm going to read her bio now. Our esteemed author, uh, an award-winning educator with an MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Iowa, the author of the anti-racist writing workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom, and co-editor of the Breakbeat Poets Volume 4, Latinx with Willie Perdomo and Jose Olivares. Felicia's teaching career includes the University of New Mexico, where she was distinguished as the most innovative educator of the year 
or the century, I say the century, the University of Iowa, where she was distinguished as the Outstanding Instructor of the Year in Colorado College, where she received the Theodore Roosevelt Collins Outstanding Faculty Award. Originally from the great city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, she currently serves as a Creativity and Innovation Scholar in Residence at Colorado College. For more information about the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, you can go to the website, www.antiracistworkshop.com, not to be confused with racistworkshop.com. Don't go to that site. You want antiracistworkshop.com. Um, all right. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going to sit back and listen to these really important um, minds um, in, in, in the field of, of letters and learning uh, get down, jam. Uh, I will be back later to help moderate the Q&A. Um, throughout the conversation, you can put um, very uh, supportive comments in the chat, um, and uh, we will get to your uh, big questions at the end. I'm sure we have a wonderful mix of readers and educators, uh, artists, um, and just generally concerned human beings. So very excited to get this thing going. Without further ado, Courtney J. Body and Felicia Rose Chabot. Wow. Thank you. Jeez. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny when you have your bio read out loud, it feels like, oh, is this is this your life? Um, uh, so thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to kick us off a little bit. But Felicia, did you have anything that you wanted to say before we get in? Thank you. That was lovely and funny and put me at ease. I get so nervous every time, no matter what. It's amazing to me that that doesn't wear off. And so, um, yeah, just thank you for that very warm pleasant welcome. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be able to join this conversation. I am currently, while I'm based in New York, I'm, I'm currently in Cumming, Georgia, which is the, um, the stewarded by the uh, Uchi and the Cherokee nations um, in terms of the land, water, and air. And um, this also happens to be an area where my family actually hails from. So um, I actually have those two native uh uh, in indigenous nations and peoples woven into my DNA, as well as um, being uh, someone who identifies as black. And um, I think this is actually kind of a, an amazing moment that I'm, I am here instead of New York to have this conversation with you, Felicia. Um, so uh, as Idris said, I am uh, the VP of education and school engagement at the New Victory Theater, which is powered by the New 42, which is on 42nd Street between 7th and uh, 8th Avenues. And that is where we believe extraordinary performing arts should be a part of everyone's life from the earliest years on. I'm also the creator and host of Teaching Artistry Podcast, which celebrates artists, community engagement, and equity. And so I recommend you check out uh, our podcast uh, on SoundCloud uh, or Appa Podcasts or at the website that I'm putting in the chat here. So, uh, like I said, I am thrilled to have this conversation with Felicia. Um, I got a chance to um, get a preview or read the book. Um, I have to say that I have to go back and read many other parts of the, the, um, the, the book because I feel like it's a strong resource that I can use. And I think that that's what's uh, really exciting about this is that you may be a writer, you may be in the creative rights, uh, but in the creative arts itself, being cross-disciplinary within that wider sector, is some, I think there's something for for everybody in this book. So I just wanted to explain the, the structure of this uh, conversation. So 
uh, me and Felicia are going to chat for a little bit. We're going to um, talk about this remarkable book. We're going to zoom in on specific parts of the book, and then uh, we'll open it up to you all for any questions. However, and I'm seeing people already doing this, that if you have any um, responses or questions along the way, feel free to pop those in the chat. Um, we will uh, do our best to honor those responses during the Q&A section. Um, all right, Felicia, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Thank you for your time. I thanked you in an email, but I just appreciate, you know, we all take on this, this extra labor to do this work. And so I appreciate you taking the time to, you know, to, to spend time with my words, to think deeply through these ideas as you're already putting them into action. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of work. And so I just appreciate your generosity, um, for being here today and having this exchange with me. Well, thank you. As Idris said, we, we, I mean, as a podcast and in my own life, everything I do in the podcast is like my own journey that everybody else gets to explore with me. And, um, after George Floyd last year, we made, um, a specific video series that was called, we can't go back where we were targeting and focused specifically on anti-racism practices. And, uh, he was the last episode of that. And th this feels like a nice evolution from that particular series as that conversation or that part of that conversation is definitely being woven into the main audio platform. So this is actually going to be on the podcast too. So I'm excited about everything. <laughs> yeah, good. I'm glad that works out that way. I mean, yeah. I know I get some questions sometimes in these interviews, like what, what's your next project? What are you going to work on next? You know? And it's like, so jarring to me to think that like, no, this is the thing that I did mm -hmm. with my life. <laughs> This is what it's been building to, and this is the work. Like this mm -hmm. is the work moving forward, and so, um, like for me, it all aligns, and I'm glad to hear that it does for you as well. Yeah, actually, like just to, to that point, I was, um, I am, I love Sonia Renee Taylor, and just recently she was doing a, a an Instagram live talking about this work, and she was like, I would love to try and take that word out of this. This is my life, she said. You know, the, the fact is, is that you're right. Like you even say the, this particular, this particular book is your life's work, which means that it comes off the page and into your life. Right. So I was thinking about it as I was reading this, um, about, again, about those sort of parallels between the creative writing world and what I was reading from your personal experience and aspects of making change within that world and the performing arts world, which is definitely having its own moment right now. And I was thinking about, you know, not only the work that I, I do specifically around theater and theater education, but thinking about my own college experience. I, I am an adjunct professor. While I tend to work in the um, graduate level sector, these conversations are definitely happening in terms of anti-racism within the, the professor sector, at least where I, I've been. And then I was thinking even more about college students who are specifically in theater programs throughout the nation and how they this conversation is not new to them or to us, but it is. it feels like there's a collective thing that's now happening. Happening. And, um, you know, I've been in some conversations or have listened to some conversations about students who identify as black or indigenous or Asian or Latinx or, 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 be, or any sort of person of color who falls into that um, wider umbrella in any college or conservatory theater program and having felt like they have to be silent or gaslit if they speak up about feelings that they feeling oppressed or feeling like they're not being um, embraced 
or included. Um, and then the, all the technique that one is learning that is very much steeped in this, you know, white dominant power structure. So I thought we'd kick us off by you reading um, a passage in the book that is pretty early on called um, Preparing for Change. And this uh, chapter or the section is called A Safe Space for Co Creative Concentration. Sure. I will happily do that. Um, okay. When people of color receive an invitation to write, to exercise voice in public space, naturally, we're wary. Our lives are an exercise in repression, the everyday denial of voice, so as to safeguard our bodies. By not speaking out, we reassure white people that we are inoffensive, non-disruptive, not at all how they see us, be it consciously or subconsciously, that is, as imbeciles, criminals, clowns, or whores. And we deny ourselves voice in order to avoid losing our shit. Because once we open our mouths, who knows what'll come out and when it'll stop. Our welfare depends on a cultural imperative of silence. That's why I just come out and say it. Take my class. I teach an anti-racist writing workshop. I email this message to student-led organizations and influential faculty members that support people of color, first-generation college students, feminists, activists, and queer and questioning students. The title of my email, a safe space for creative concentration. I define safe as a student's right to retain their own authority integrity, and personal artistic preferences throughout the creative writing process without fear of free-reigning bigotry. In the message, I share the story of my past frustrations in workshop and then counter that narrative with my own approach, mainly that I believe that writing is a political act. And in order to honor that offering, we must consciously work against traditions of dominance and control in the creative writing classroom curating safe spaces for participants to explore race, class, gender, and sexual orientation. Don't worry about being creative, I plead. It's not about that. It's about sharing our stories. We must be heard. The first time I sent this email, I was nervous as hell. I imagined the collective eye roll of my white colleagues, an anti-racist writing workshop. What does that even mean? It didn't help that I was new to campus. I couldn't rely on reputation to substantiate me. I felt vulnerable, wary of the backlash I might encounter. But then I got that first response from a student, a quick fire email in all caps, yes, I'm in. I didn't know this person, I had never worked with him before and yet he understood without me even having to explain. At that moment, I knew that I was onto something. I wasn't crazy. It wasn't just me. People of color need a collaborative artistic community to which they belong and feel safe. They need it, but they don't always know how to ask for it and are often unaware that alternatives exist. It's our responsibility as workshop leaders to verbalize our anti-racist agenda for them in clear, unapologetic language, language that opens doors instead of closes them. We must reach out to people of color, openly differentiate our approach to the writing workshop and then welcome them into our collective. 
as opposed to the norm, recruiting, exploiting, and then wholly disregarding a few token writers of color in an otherwise all white workshop. The anti-racist approach demands that we dismantle the traditional infrastructure first and then go about recruitment second. To recruit writers of color, we've gotta be about it. Being about it isn't easy because we're forced to articulate our writing workshop principles independent of the old infrastructure. Suddenly, the way it's always been done feels like a crutch. Without it, we might stumble. That crutch is the quote, monument of white ideology of which Claudia Rankin writes in her essay, In Our Way, Racism in Creative Writing. Quote, to maintain our many writing departments with their majority white faculty has, we often forget, taken conscious work, choice and insistence. The perpetuation of white orientation, white narrative, white point of reference, white privilege, white denial, white dominance, and white defensiveness, if any of these things are pointed out or questioned, has taken work and is the originating problem." End quote. In other words, maintaining the status quo takes time, energy, and resources, all of which we claim to lack when it comes to creating an alternative anti-racist model. Admitting that neutrality does not exist, that we currently fuel politicized race-based writing workshops is the first and most important step toward change. To bring down the monument of white-centered ideology, we have got to dismantle not only the pedagogical infrastructure of white bias, but also the white supremacist ego of domination and control behind the decision-making. Where do we even begin? Let's take a cue from successful course designers and begin at the end, evaluating the values implicit in our writing workshops learning objectives. Thank you for, for reading that. As, as I read that and now hearing you, um, it's so interesting because I've heard, because we had a conversation while I was still reading it, I could then continue reading, hearing your voice. Does that make sense? So anyway, um, I was thinking about, again, sort of this driving toward uh, the understanding of driving towards uh, safe spaces. But a couple of years ago, I had another sort of live panel. And one of the panelists said, um, she's a dancer and her name's uh, Penelope McCordy. And she said, you know, <laughs> she said, um, you know, forget safe spaces. I'm looking for liberated spaces where those of us who don't always feel safe can feel completely ourselves without having to shut pieces of ourselves down. And that's what she's trying to do as she's an, um, a dancer and an educator. And this book, um, I think is very, very much saying yes to all of that, like the, the student said. Right. Um, but I think that I wonder, I had, I had a few questions inside of what I'm about to say, I think, um, I was thinking about how this book is not just for those who identify as white, but also for those of us who um, maybe have consciously or unconsciously internalized racism or are upholding um, constructs, again, consciously or unconsciously, those those moments of like the status quo or, you know, just the way it's always been because, you know, change is, is hard. But the, the there was something that you said in there around the energy it takes to actually keep it like that is actually more 
it's it's more exhausting <laughs> than actually like loosening and creating a, this idea of safe space or or for for not even an idea like for real so i'm just wondering what other like if you're talking about the backwards design like what are some of the elements in the book that address that to to subvert that idea of the status quo or that's just the way you know it's always been done Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea of liberation versus a safe space, like a liberating space versus a safe space is fascinating because I think that, I think that those liberated spaces exist. Like, I think they exist in these silos, um, you know, Cave Canem, Vona, right? Um, Canto Mundo, like you've got these, these, um, this oasis for, for uh, writers of color to, to kind of, find their own community and and feel the sense of of um shared um like base right to to be able to communicate in a way where they don't have to constantly explain their references um and and that is in and of itself like feels liberating um i argue that all students deserve this experience within a traditional environment, um, an academic environment. And so this is the safe space that we're working to create um, with this dream of this liberated space in, in academia down, down the road or even outside of academia, where, where can we um, feed all of our students in this way? Um, and I think that, you know, it, as I as I spoke of in, in that excerpt, I think initially it's about decentering whiteness. Um, but the next step, and I think the step that we often overlook is decentering authority. Um, so for example, if if those of us who are retreating to these silos, this oasis, um have have the experience of of um, you know feeding our spirit in this way. And then we go back to the traditional classroom and we take on that costume, that role of, of educator, professor, instructor, whatever title we hold, we, we um, exercise authority in, in the way that we've witnessed by osmosis almost. We take on the, the traits of, of what authority looks like in a classroom and we model them ourselves. We replicate that behavior. And so um, what happens when we feed our spirits in this way and then we introduce a different way of being in the classroom from authority to ally? And so that's the, the crux of the shift that happens. Not only do we as educators need to reflect on our own um, bias, right? And our own um, inheritance um, in terms of, of how we've been taught um, and what we're replicating on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how are we exercising ego in the classroom? Is it through manipulating our students' work so that it's um, it better conforms to our own aesthetic preferences? Is it about dominating and controlling our students so that things run smoother? Classes, time is used more effectively, right? There's, there's not so much of them talking as opposed to them writing down everything that I say. And so it's the shift from from authority to ally and how can we ally with our students no matter the discipline. And I love that you're from this or advocate, you know, speaking on behalf of this performing arts background because I think that there's it's applicable in every single one of our classrooms. Like 
history, math, um, you know, uh, from second grade to, to graduate school, how, how can we decenter ourselves alongside the goal of decentering whiteness? Well, I, I think that's a nice actually segue into the next excerpt that I'd love for you to read. Um, I'm going to put it in the chat for those of you who have the book. Uh oh. 171. Okay, so this is um, chapter eight, promoting camaraderie and collective power on starting on page 166. Um, this is again that the what um what I think is interesting about the way that this book reads is it's so much of you sharing your own story and then applying it to, okay, now how do you, what's your story and how do, how do you create a collective, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the point is in the moment. So I'd love to hear this section. Yeah. I'm happy to read this section. Um, I want to note that the, the point of that structure, right. The fact that, um, I, I began each chapter with a, a memoir-driven anecdote. It's because I wanted to do the work myself and I needed to do the work myself. I needed to examine my own educational trauma. I needed to examine my own lived experience and teaching inheritance to say, why do I do what I do now? Why am I making the choices that I'm making now every day when I show up to teach? Um, and so I had to look back and answer that with a story um, of my own. And that helped kind of catapult me back into the present of, of the why behind the work that I do. Um, so this is when I started at Colorado College. It's called Academic Freedom. When I first started teaching at Colorado College, I was thrilled at the prospect of my own office. Two years as a full-time caregiver to my son taught me that a room with a door that locked was a crucial coping strategy, better than, say, crying into my ham sandwich at the park. That's why I didn't flinch when my supervisor led me up one flight of stairs away from my new colleagues toward a small, hot, windowless room. There was really nothing else, she apologized. Tech will be by soon to set up your computer. I smiled in the ensuing silence. My office. Three taps on the door signaled tech, a bald white guy with pierced ears and my desktop computer. They stuck you in here, he asked, frowning. This is an old storage closet. And then after a pause, you really don't rate, do you? What could I say? He was kind of killing my high. You know who they put in places like these? People the college wants to forget about. At that, he left. I felt suddenly flushed, the silence crushing. Little did I know the quiet wouldn't last. The office next to mine belonged to an ombudsman, a white male conflict resolution practitioner with whom faculty and staff sorted out their workplace disputes. I know this because the connecting wall between our offices was so thin that I could hear every word of their exchanges. At first, the writer in me perked at such private conversations. White men and women affronted by accusations of racist or sexist behavior. I kept a running word doc of phrases that materialized in the muggy air around me, my alleged insensitivity. These zealous activists, bunch of student snowflakes. Whatever happened to academic freedom? Was this what it was like to pass, I wondered? That cloak of invisibility? 
white folks unguarded among themselves. I was one wall removed from the racist campus culture I knew existed, and yet I couldn't call it out. Neither could I tune it out. Good God, the irony. At the time, I was mentoring a student who planned to petition the college for greater diversity in curricular content and pedagogical strategies. When she and other students of color sought me out to discuss classroom experiences of racist and sexist bigotry, I found myself talking a little louder than necessary. Maybe our message would carry over the wall. Eventually, I went to my supervisor and complained. The whole ombuds business was stressing me out. It wasn't my job to hear out their nonsense, which made me wonder, why could I hear it at all? Weren't these conversations supposed to be confidential? Why stick the ombuds rep in a closet? That is, after all, where the college puts people they want to forget about. We, the students of Colorado College, believe that every student who graduates from CC should have a basic grasp of issues concerning responsible citizen citizenship in a globalized world, began students' open letter to the school administration. Quote, this petition is a formal, a formal statement of our dedication to engaging with subjects of, but not limited to, class, race, gender, and sexuality, Every day, subjects we want to see reflected in our classrooms and in syllabi across campus. More and more students nationwide are harnessing their collective power to expose closeted issues of racial animus. They write letters, long, eloquent, researched letters claiming their citizenship and demanding plurality. This is evidence of anti-racist writing at its finest the skill set necessary to turn inward, divulging personal narratives of subjugation and outward, channeling those narratives into change. They're calling us out. No longer can we actively deny institutional, structural, and individual racism in our colleges and universities. To do so is both academically irresponsible and morally abhorrent. Our students are calling us out because they know that without public pressure for comprehensive change, academia's legacy of systemic racism will persist. Quote, you cannot afford to ignore the problems festering in your department, in your classrooms, and in your colleagues' classrooms, writes a group of Williams College students in their open letter to the school administration. Their campaign, hashtag boycott English, is clear, quote, we refuse to be forced out of our classrooms by misogyny and racism any longer. Quote, we are dismayed by the many white supremacist, anti-Semitist, Semitic, sexist, and anti-LGBTQ messages that have been posted, painted, carved, or otherwise displayed in dorms, classrooms, campus buildings, and online writes University of Nevada Reno students in their open letter to the school administration. You leave marginalized students and their supporters to carry the burden for transforming the campus climate while at the same time restricting their ability to do so. Quote, we call on current Yale leaders to move beyond the insufficient promises of neoliberal diversity and inclusion writes Black graduate students and allies in their open letter to the school administration. Fostering inclusivity for people of color is important, but demanding a protocol which ensures accountability 
for unnecessary and antagonistic actions taken against people of color is imperative for implementing true systemic change. We are tired of doing the work to feel safe because the school consistently fails to provide us safety, writes Franklin and Marshall students in their open letter to the school administration. We and our allies have come together to demand that Franklin and Marshall's administration implement immediate and lasting changes to halt intolerable and continuous acts of racism that students of color endure at the college. And on and on. It's time to come out of the closet, y'all. Education is no longer a matter of rote regurgitation. Here's what you told me to do, and so I did it. Our students want to know why and to what end. They want the tools necessary to stake a claim in more just, equitable, and inclusive learning communities. That's real academic freedom. Our classrooms can nurture these citizens if we so choose. We can teach them to act with moral courage and intellectual honesty by rejecting traditions of cultural assimilation and suppression. We can show them what it is to reclaim, revitalize, and reimagine what education looks like by modeling anti-racist workshops that value voice. To each and every student, we can say, you matter. The end game is shifting. Today's young people demand an education that is as much about equity and power as it is about reading and writing. As such, we must reevaluate our own course assessment strategies. How do we define success? The tradition of ranking workshop participants based on implicit bias fails our students of color effectively pushing them out of the classroom. Instead, workshop leaders should aim for the heart of discovery. Who were you when you began this journey? What did you set out to do and why? Where are you currently in your learning and what's next? This sort of discovery-based assessment is unique to each student, allowing for authentic engagement, understanding and growth. It allows for hope on a lasting personal level beyond the confines of the classroom. When participants believe that they have real voice, hope trumps any arbitrary letter grade. It is this hope that is essential to our change makers. Quote, when we began to become tired and discouraged, when hopelessness seems just around the corner and when we wonder what good our actions are doing, we need to remind ourselves of the strengths and assets we possess, writes Dr. Daryl Wing Su in his open letter to brothers and sisters of color. He goes on to illustrate what strength looks like in action. We have survived through our collective strength. We have survived through our heightened perceptual wisdom. We have survived through our ability to read the contextualized meanings of our oppressors. We have survived through our bicultural flexibility. We have survived through our families and communities. We have survived through our spirituality and our religion. We have survived through our racial and ethnic identity and pride. And we have survived through our belief in the interconnectedness of the human condition. Such resiliency in the face of oppression may not register as success according to traditional top-down models of assessment, 
just as our students' tireless petitions to dismantle white supremacy are not worthy of college credit. But if we shift our perception of what constitutes learning, if we change the means of assessment to a more human discovery-based model, suddenly your students of color have opportunity to flourish. This chapter encourages workshop participants to assess their creativity as a process of surrender, not control. Control is key to the traditional model. Bend your words to satisfy the workshop leader, to get a good grade, to earn an invitation to read aloud. Instead of outward, workshop participants go inward with perspective and intention to gauge their personal progress. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough section to read aloud. That was. Courtney. I appreciate. Thank you so much. I knew it was a lot. I just. I. <laughs> but I think it. It just has so many great points, and the idea of all those other voices in there was really important for I think to share. Um. So yeah, you're getting some some beautiful um comments, and please, uh, as you are hearing what I'm curious about those who are listening, like what were some threads that were uh popping for you, um. Felicia, so, you know, we're starting to get towards the end of our time and I do want to open it up to, to questions. So I've been trying to think which one of the many questions I have left can I ask? Um, but I think, I think, I think where I want to go is I want to tell you something and then I, and then I'm going to ask you something. So, um, I was thinking about my world. So I tend to work in terms of my full-time job at the new victory. I'm focused on pre-K through 12th grade and, we come in not from the the Department of Education sector, but as a arts partner, right? So we are always coming in to disrupt whatever that space looks like and, and make it as creative as possible. Um, and more recently, our teaching artists have been, um, we, I think we've had lots of different structures that have been steeped in anti-racism practices, but we have been even more conscious and more mindful about being really intentional and very uh, overtly clear about what those are. And in fact, it's, there's a, sep, uh, a section of our t teaching artists who are looking at that very specifically to help the whole ensemble start to really embed that further into our practice. Um, so I was going to, I was going to talk more about that, but I, I am um, curious about like, you know, what you're talking about. One of the, one of the values that we have in our education department is discovery and we often talk about it from the participants' perspective, but not always from our perspective, meaning as those who have like a lesson plan or some sort of outline that we're coming in and of course we're, you know, we're reading a room and we're doing all the things and we're, we're responding to what's happening in the moment. What, what people have always struggled with our, our little sector of the world is that idea of like, who, what, are, what does discovery look like? And that's kind of the beautiful thing, right? And I feel like this gets to your point a little bit is that you can't know because that's what discovery is, <laughs> but not, not feeling like you have to control every given moment, but actually creating enough of a container where there's so much opportunity for listening for learning, for growing together and individually as a collective. Um, that's what, that's my thread that I pulled out of what you just spoke about. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think that what's really exciting about opening up an ally, our classrooms to an allyship with our students is um, allowing them to set a stake for their own like learning journey. And I think a lot of times we come to the classroom with an agenda necessarily, right? Here's my lesson plan. Here's my, my plan for the, for the semester, for the term, whatever. Um, and, and it's that um, we assume that every student is, is writing with the same goal, writing toward us, writing toward their, their grade, right? Writing toward whatever outcome we assume that they share. Um, when we open up and ask them, right? It suddenly becomes very different. They set their own stakes and say, I'm writing because I've never written this, um, I've never written a poem before and I'm really afraid to do it and I wanna try it for the very first time, low stakes. Another is I love poetry and I practiced it in my bedroom for, for hours and hours and, and I'm, I wanna publish this somewhere um, or, or give it to my parents or whatever it may be. Um, yet someone else may say, um, I'm, I'm working on expanding my vocabulary, right? And so we, when we learn um, students' own stake uh, in, in the project at hand, they're sh they share the same opportunity you know, um, to, to exercise voice, but they're doing it to a different end. And when we recognize their stake in their own learning process, we can congratulate them later when they say, look at all the different words I used or look at, I, I'm, I'm sending this out for publication or I wrote my very first poem and I'm so proud of that. I don't want all your critical feedback, right? And so we, we can learn to give and take and individualize our teaching for each and every student toward their definition of success. I, ooh, yeah. I, I wanna, um, there's some beautiful things that are, are being said here in the, in the chat, but I do wanna offer, now is a time when Idris will return and if you have specific questions, um, potentially some of the other kinds of questions that I was planning on asking um, might pop pop up, um, or you know we're just, we're here to absorb, we're here to listen, we're here to share. So if you've got specific questions, please pop them in the chat. In the meantime, while we're waiting, I'm just gonna share some of these things that are have been said. Um, I'm gonna try and make it bigger so I can read it because it's. Somehow I made it really small. The words really small. Okay. So after the first passage, um, uh, somebody was like, oh, I'm so glad that she's reading this from this section. I highlighted it just Friday. That was the, er the early section that you read. Um, really powerful. Clap, clap, clap. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, there was a quote here from somebody, um, a, something that you said, a community where you don't have to explain your references, love, with a little heart. Um yeah, it reminds me of Toni Morrison. Um, beautiful. It was powerful and spoke to my experience as one of uh, very few Latino teachers in my building in middle school, um, first generation in many ways. Um, I learned uh, a whole term, uh, a term's worth, <laughs> a world's worth uh, in one section, gratitude. Um, love, quote, quote, uh, Workshop leaders should aim for the heart of discovery, which we talked about um, so much in that I, I couldn't type fast enough, <laughs> looking forward to getting my hands on the book, et cetera, and, and listening to this recording. Um, this is from a person, another person, another Courtney. Uh, our students have taken to Instagram to talk about their experiences, and I'm wondering how to help 
how to help what uh, ask what they like about workshop freedom um, is uh, the usual answer, but maybe she's looking for something more specific. Like how, are there any uh, protocols or maybe, maybe the, the appendix might be helpful to share in this moment. So the question is, I'm sorry, the question is, I'm um, making a question out of this. More freedom yeah. In the I, I'm making a question out of that comment, which is, you know, right now they're, her students are going towards Instagram to ask for things, but she's actually saying like, I'm, I'm here, I'm listening. So I'm wondering if maybe some tools you can share with her that might be in this book. Sure. I mean, it is, and this is in reference to a writing workshop in particular. It seems like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the book outlines, um, the, the whole idea with the book is that I wanted to give so many specific tangible takeaway strategies. Um, not to say that this is like the model, <laughs> replicate it because that's sort of, you know, that, that goes against the ethos of the book. It's what applies to you and your specific community. Um, what could you adjust and adapt? And so when we think about opportunities to um, allow our students freedom within their own workshops, um, the, the strategies that I like to use are um, start from the very beginning, right? In which we, we do a lot of free writing. Um, we share early versions of our drafts in, in many, I do a whole facilitation with faculty that's like 20 different strategies for, for writing workshops in the, in the kind of early stages beyond this conception of a traditional formal workshop. It's okay to bring that very private document forward and make it public. Um, kind of taking on this this studio arts ethos of like you know you you leave your canvas out um people can walk by and and see it and so we engage with these works very early on um in many different ways of workshopping whether it's uh, the student self-editing their own work um which are some really powerful exercises um for them to um be their own best audience uh be their own favorite reader and they know who they're writing toward um then peer exercises small group exercises and then the large group exercise um what i find most effective for a large group workshop and pivoting from the traditional model is to allow students to write that artist statement that first page on any draft that articulates whether it be just to the instructor or to their peers here's what i'm attempting to do Here's where I succeeded, which is a really beautiful gesture to make toward one another, here or to, toward oneself. Here's where I succeeded in this crazy experimental messy thing that I want to just say is horrible. Um, and, and here's what was challenging, right? And here's what I see for a future draft. Um, so answering these kind of bullet points in a letter format, not only familiarizes them with what it is to write a letter, which I think is a, a lovely um, uh, thing to pick up along the way, but also um, kind of helps them reflect on the work as opposed to just on autopilot writing it, turning it in or handing it over, passively receiving critique, changing it to make everybody happy and giving it back for a grade, right? Um, so instead they're they're engaging in a reflective portfolio um, through this, this one page artist statement and everyone reads that in my workshop um, so that we can adhere to the, the craft-based questions that are listed at the end um, and, and only respond to those questions, right? This is what the author wants to know about, about their own work. Um, and, and obviously, obviously, ending the legacy of silencing the writer 
in the traditional writing workshop model. It is unacceptable in 2021 to silence any person who is presenting their work, their voice on the page. We allow them to facilitate, to lead, to guide um, so that we can educate ourselves about what it is that they're attempting to do and best serve and rally around them. Yeah, Idris, you, you got the next question? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a lot. There's some really exciting um, statements and thoughts in here, but I, I feel like, you know, Felicia, you really spoke to the question of, you know, how do we possibly adapt, you know, if I'm a middle school teacher, if I'm a high school teacher. Um, and so the question I have for you, actually, Felicia, is like, in your journeys with this book, this book came out top of the year have any um, uh, teachers reached out to you and shared any of their successes, anything that they found to be effective, um, anything like that? I've been so privileged to receive so many letters from educators across the spectrum. Um, I actually, you know, just took to Twitter a couple of weeks ago um, after receiving hate mail, which comes, you know, as well as par for the course. Um, and, and I, I said something on, on Twitter and, and these educators rallied around me and someone said, um, well, you've changed my second grade classroom and it'll never be the same. So take that with you tonight. And I just like, oh my God, like that was just so moving to me. I mean, there were so many moving statements in response to, to that post, but like the fact that educators across the age spectrum are implementing strategies um, is, is really incredible for me. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm actually in conversation with someone about what the current model is, this Lu Lucy Calkins workshop model, um, and, and how to, if there is such a way to adapt the anti-racist writing workshop into a, a, a model for K through eight or even K through 12 um, students. But I think that the biggest takeaway um, for some of the educators that I've spoken with um, is allowing student voice in the workshop, um, allowing student choice when it comes to what um, they want to, um, uh, what they want to write, what kind of, you know, what, what they, um, a lot of times it's like, okay, this is our poetry unit. We're, we're working toward a poem or we're working toward a short story. Here's what we're doing. This is a nonfiction segment and allowing students choice um, within what it is they want to write. Um, and then uh, expanding, we're still, we're still committing to expanding what model mentor texts look like and sound like. I think that we have um, our favorite five, quote unquote, diverse authors that we continue to go back to over and over again. And so the book advocates for celebrating contemporary living writers, um, the younger, the better, right? Those writers who are at the very beginning of their careers, how can we support them and celebrate them just as equally as we do James Baldwin, right? And, and invite them to have a conversation with us in the classroom. And so, um, you know, what, what educators have um, communicated with me as diversifying their, their model mentor texts has been really moving. Great. Um, you, there's a really, really rich question here. Um, Felicia, your memoir segment was so instructive on so many levels. Can you detail your interior movement from pride of achievement, i.e. the ability and position to transmit your acquired experiential knowledge 
to democratizing the classroom environment in a way you've seen students' boats rise. Is there a new model emerging? This is beautiful. I think I need to hear that again. I, I need to read it. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Your, uh, yeah. Interior movement from pride of achievement. Oh, I would love to get context for this question. I think it's... Um, I think that, um, well, let me say this. It was very, very difficult to articulate what I do in the classroom. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I think I had to look backward to kind of reflect on and examine um, my own behavior. Um, Courtney mentioned internalized racism. And I think this, this, um, ego of authority is very much a gesture of white supremacy that, you know, it takes a long, good, hard look at ourselves to call it that. It seems like such an ugly term. It's like, no, no, I'm just <laughs> teaching my students. Um, but, but when we really sit with the why and reflect on it in the book, I like to include a lot of questions, a lot of surveys and reflective elements so that, you know, individuals can sit and ask themselves and free write on why do I do things the way that I do them, right? And, and so when it came to me articulating, um, you know, how I'm democratizing the classroom, that, that was tough work. Um, I think that this could very well be a moment for a new model. I think that folks are listening I think something about this particular pandemic and remote learning is making this um, educational pandemic, right? This educational uh, disparity all the more evident. Um, it's necessitating that we connect with our students digitally, human to human. How do we do that when we don't even know them, when we don't address them by name sometimes? Um, and so I think that it is a moment for a new model. Um, my hope and dream is that it can emerge, that it is already emerging. Um, I certainly am deeply honored that the book has garnered any attention beyond my circle. You know, it's it's stunning to me that um, this this grassroots movement is happening on little like Haymarket Press, like to, to spread word of the book. And so um, fingers crossed, let's do the work. I'm down. We are coming to a close and um... Felicia, can you share what your website, where people, obviously people can get the book on Amazon and all sorts of places or a book bar, um, but um, you have a website too. What's your website? So yeah, I my the book website, which is the one I would love people to go to. They go to my old website all the time, which is just a hodgepodge. Um, www.antiracistworkshop.com. Um, I put it in the chat because it is so important to me to direct traffic there under the resources tab, there is a, what I'm calling a living document because it sounds fancy. It's really a Google doc um, of um, 
contemporary writers of color. It's a resource. Um, there's more than 100 writers per category broken down by genre. Um, Alison Rollins, a uh, um, fabulous poet and librarian, uh, helped me to construct this resource. Um, I encourage anyone to add to that list. Um, it's just alphabetized and you just insert in your own edition uh, for contemporary writers of color to, to seek out and celebrate or use it as a resource for yourself. Okay, so um, to close us out, I'm hoping that you feel good because I feel like this is the group, the group needs to hear this. On page 79 is uh, a letter that you composed to the, to the reader and I think it will be applicable to this particular group of folks as well. And thank you all for, for listening. Thank you for your amazing comments and questions and keep engaging. This is, this is definitely, um, an ongoing movement and, uh, you, like we're all, we're all in this collectively. So I give it to you, Felicia. Thank you. A letter to close. Dear reader, a police car parked in front of my house yesterday, blocking the driveway. My seven-year-old son watched from the window. They can't come for us if we didn't do anything wrong, right, Daddy? He asked. My husband, a black man, laughed. We needed to go to the grocery store, so my husband took a picture of the police car and posted it on Instagram, then handed me a post-it note on which he had written the phone number of an older white male colleague. He walked away from me and toward the police officer. My body said, no, don't go. I'll go. Please, no. All that long driveway, my body pulsing with something's wrong. This is wrong. My son chased after him. Wait for me, daddy. And I stood outside the garage with tears in my eyes, past and present and future blurring into one. And then it was, good morning, sir. And if it's not too much trouble, sir. He was just doing paperwork, my son explained as we backed out of the driveway. But I was silent and my husband was silent and it was a long time before either of us said anything. What do our bodies do with all we don't say? Does your body suffer too, knowing what it knows? That it's wrong. The everyday shootings, the children caged, the blue lights and brown boys, men, dead, the endless assault by white supremacy, power, control, domination. How do we reconcile this knowledge? Do we bow our heads, swallow the scream, get on and off Facebook? Maybe this book can teach us voice, to speak out, to speak back, to say what we know, but don't allow ourselves to feel because to do so would be equal parts pain and pardon. Maybe this book can teach me courage because the closer I get to finishing, the more fearful I am of its reception. I was so sure at the beginning that this project was my life's purpose. But now that I'm a month away from giving birth to my second son, I surprise myself by wondering all that ugliness, is it worth it? Ugliness on ugliness on death, how do we mourn racism and live racism and fight racism all at once? Maybe this book in committing words onto the page is a success in and of itself. 
Who cares if every time I read the words aloud, I cry? This is my life's work, but it's also my life story. The pedagogy is necessarily personal. I can only hope that someone somewhere might read it and attempt a different way, a better way, freeing our bodies to speak more and suffer less. I am so tired, grief-stricken, and afraid. Lend me your hope. They say that a writer's work must stand alone, that I won't be there when you pick up my book, but maybe I can be if you let me. Maybe we can build this thing together. In solidarity, Felicia. Thank you for listening to episode 41 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Dear reader, in solidarity, Felicia. Join us next time for a conversation with Denny Palmer Wolf. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.